KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're glad to have you with us uh, today. You know, it occurs to me that uh, the news is rushing at us so quickly from so many directions right now. It feels like we're kind of drinking through a fire hose. Um, And what ends up happening is on any given day, sort of thinking about where do we turn our attention on Political Rewind to uh, today. What we haven't done for quite some time now is really to dig more deeply into exactly what's happening with Georgia and the coronavirus, which obviously continues to be a story of enormous concern and interest to all of us uh, in the state of Georgia. And so we are going to focus on that Today, uh, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my partner on the Thursday show, is with us. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Bill. And you're sure right about that rush of news. Um, it's just been so, so hard I to have lost with. Kevin. I can't hear Kevin's sound right now. Um, I'll get back to him in a second. Uh, we are also joined by Professor Joshua Weitz. Dr. Weitz is the director of the Interdisciplinary uh, Ph.D. Program Very, very uh, big title, I'll explain it better, in Quantitative Biosciences uh, at Georgia Tech. Um, Dr. Weitz, you are also the founder and the head of a research group whose basic mission is to understand how viruses transform human health and the fate of our planet, which makes you uh, somebody we really are glad to have back again on Political Rewind. And essentially, you're a professor of biology at uh, Georgia Tech, uh, among many other things. Is it, did I introduce you fairly this time, Joshua? Uh, I don't think you introduced me unfairly before, but thanks for having me back. And I think I've <laughs> I'm very glad to have right, you. Right. <laughs> I mentioned before that when you have the virus expert on the program, that's probably not great news. So we still have serious things. Yeah, but, that's. <laughs> but look forward to the conversation. I think that's. I do, too. Kevin Riley, do I have you back with me? I sure hope so, Bill. It's good to talk to you, as always. Oh, there you are. Yeah. Yeah, Um, thanks. I'm sorry for a minute there. um, No, uh, good to be on. I I think you're right about this rush of news, and I'm glad to be on with Dr. Weiss and getting back to the coronavirus because uh, I don't think it's a good idea for any of us uh, to lose sight of what's going on. So, Dr. Weitz, let me start with a question that I think a lot of us are really pondering. It's certainly something that listeners to this show are writing me about or talking to me about, that they're a little confused. We're watching in states around Georgia, in Florida, in North Carolina, in Alabama, Texas, we're seeing that the states that have opened up um, have experienced pretty significant spikes, in some cases bigger numbers than they've had previously. Um, and and yet here in Georgia, we seem to have not had the same dramatic increase in cases. Uh, although we should say that I think over the past four weeks, we've seen an increase in cases. Cases have grown by, by relatively important numbers after a period in which that wasn't so much the case. So I guess the most basic first question is, 
What is happening in your perspective here in terms of the growth of the virus? Yes, I think we're in and have been in a somewhat dangerous plateau for a while. And the reason why we're in a plateau, I think, is confusing. And I think listeners and folks uh, who are watching the news and watching trends of coronavirus and trying to figure out what to do, how they should act, should be confused. Uh, So let me try to unpack it a little bit. Part of, I think, the confusion Mm -hmm. had to do with messaging even as far back as March or April, where there was a discussion that there was going to be this very big peak or wave, and we needed to flatten the curve immediately and lock things down, which is very, let's call it, blunt instrument to try to deal with a heterogeneous problem. And in Georgia, we started to do that, and then we were one of the first states to begin, as per the governor's orders, to begin to open up. And that was not received well. And I'm not a political expert, so I'll ask you, Kevin or Bill, you can weigh in. But my impression is that Governor Kemp remains one of the least popular governors, despite being in a red state. And there are GOP governors like Maryland, like Larry Hogan, who have different popularity ratings even in Democratic states. So there's certainly a perception that things were not done so well. But even in late April, the reason why we were worried about the reopening is that there weren't hallmarks of the kinds of indicators that the state was primed to reopen. We didn't see sustained cases going down. We didn't have the contact tracing in place. And what we predicted was that if individuals, in some sense, continued to act similarly to what they were doing before that late April reopening, we would see a sustained plateau of cases. And we've seen that, about 750 a day, day after day, 30 or 40 fatalities on average, day after day. Those are not good numbers. Other places around this size around the world have gotten much closer to zero. So we've seen in the last two weeks even more of an upswing. And if you look at mobility reports, you can see the trend slowly of opening up. So I think we are worried in terms of public health forecasting and models and trying to think about viral dynamics that as a whole, we remain susceptible to this disease, and yet it's circulating. And yet we're sitting right now on this sort of knife edge, this plateau that is dangerous because there's nothing inevitable about going down. Kevin, jump in. Well, I actually wanted to go back to that flatten the curve question, right? So um, I think what you're saying, Dr. Weitz, and I want to confirm this with you, is so we flattened the curve. The problem is the curve was flattened at a fairly high level. So when people hear that, hey, cases aren't growing exponentially, they're not getting worse every day, you're saying, yeah, but you still have this steady stream of cases, which is, I guess we have, you know, kind of that 850 people hospitalized. You know, if we look at that seven-day average, um, that that's what's going on. And that you're saying, hey, that's a bad sign. That's not a good sign. I mean, there are worse signs. I mean, it could be worse, but it could be better. And so that is exactly what I'm saying, that we did manage to bring up a little hospital capacity. We, the whole issue of trying to avoid hospital overload, I think we did manage to do that. But with respect to other steps we could have taken to continue to drive it down, they were not as successful as we would have liked. When we did our projections in late April, we saw an alternative with a slight uptick in control. We could have actually now been at a case where we're, relatively speaking, you know, close to zero. But I think we're on the same page. We're at a dangerous plateau which is why 
it's we flattened it, but not in a good. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC editor Kevin Riley and biology professor Dr. Joshua Weitz of Georgia Tech on the show today. Dr. Weitz, I want to... So President Trump, among other political uh, leaders, uh, they, they were attributing the increased number of cases uh, of coronavirus being discovered to the fact there's more testing. What they're suggesting is that uh, because it's not really spreading, it's already been there, it's just that the tests have revealed what's already there, but that's not an indication that the virus is spreading anymore. What, can you unpack that for us? There's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, the idea that if only, and I think we should say what was said, if we tested less, we wouldn't have any cases, all right? Like that's the, the premise is insane. Right? There's a similar thing, you're, you're still pregnant if you don't take a pregnancy test, and it's actually the opposite direction. There's a real problem with not testing because the premise is, well, you know, it's, it's sort of an indicator, and if we tested less, Maybe, you know, we'd have more cases, blah, blah, blah. The reverse is true. By testing less, we might actually have more cases. Testing can help not only give us an indicator of the state of play of the epidemic, but also inform people that they are infected, which can initiate contact tracing, which can therefore change their behavior and therefore reduce the spread of the virus. So testing is not a passive device. It is part of an active response. So we absolutely should be doing more testing. It's done. But the other issue is whether or not testing alone, like whether or not the, the unknown state of play is really kind of going up or down because there is this double issue of if we aren't testing enough, as we test more, we see more cases. There are two things I think that needs to be clear. It's not inevitable that as we test more, Cases, raw cases, not in terms of positivity, but raw cases must go up. Look at New York City. They're testing more and more, but the number of cases is going down because they went through a very bad period, and now it is improving, relatively speaking. And we shouldn't get to the point of New York City, but the point is that there's not a direct relationship. Just because we test more, that's the driver. There are fundamental reasons why we're seeing more cases, and that's because the epidemic is continuing to spread. If we really want to understand the extent of how much COVID-19 is spreading, we actually need a different kind of test, which tests for antibodies rather than viral shedding. And I think we're still waiting. In some places we have it, but Georgia has lagged behind. There are a number of surveys going on, so I guess I wanted to make that one last point before turning it to, back to Kevin and you, which is that until we get a sense of the prevalence of antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 in Georgia, we will remain in the dark whether for every case we get, there are 10 unknown cases or even 20 unknown cases as we've seen in some other places. So the 60,000 or so cases right now we have in Georgia might mean 600,000, you know, five to 6% of the state actually having been infected at this point. We need to figure that out. 
Kevin, I've lost you again. Um, we're not hearing you. Joshua, are you hearing Kevin? Because I'm not. Um, I hear you, but maybe Kevin could try again. I, I saw you. I think you're trying to say something. Try one more time, Kevin. All right. We're not hearing Kevin Riley. Uh, Tom Faust will work on uh, getting him back. So, um, Dr. Weitz, let's talk about antibodies because they. I'm a little bit confused uh, by what. Well, let me ask. go to the first question. Um, are we doing enough testing? I mean, the governor has said that he's very pleased with the, the great expansion of testing in Georgia. It's far more easily available to get COVID-19 tests, at least. Um, are we getting to the point where we are doing enough testing from your point of view? I think we're still short. We could do more. I still want to know what we're doing with the test results. So let's just give an example. Someone is feeling a little bit off, right? And they say, well, I don't know. Let me go get tested. By the time you feel off, it may have been already multiple days since you were exposed. You go to a testing center. There are a few testing centers that give you rapid results, I mean, within the hour. But many may take two to four days. So now let's say it took about three or four days for the symptoms to arrive, about three more days for your results to arrive. It may be six or seven days out. And at that point, if we initiate contact tracing, we have lost an incredible amount of time because it may be half of the new infections are actually pre-symptomatic or about the time of that you're infected. So my biggest issue here is moving the time up, both in terms of how quickly results are getting back and how quickly contact tracing. And that is not something, again, we have all these indicators. We're using, I think, the wrong passive indicators rather than active indicators to try to turn this case information as a means to control, not just track the spread of the disease. Kevin, I know you're back. We're going to have to take a break, but why don't we see if we can get a quick question in from you? Yeah, thanks for your patience, both of you in the audience. Dr. Weiss, if I'm an average Georgian, you know, I'm hearing you and you're saying, hey, things, uh, cases are at a dangerous level and all that, but my, in my life, I'm hearing, hey, Cases are up because we're testing more. I can go to restaurants now. I can even get on an airplane. So, so convince me quickly, because we don't have much time, why you are insisting uh, that things are still bad. The number of cases uh, com- now compared to, let's say, March, when we were beginning to close things down, is higher. It's higher now than it was before. It's also heterogeneous. The issue is that we're more aware. So I will say to the, and I guess there's no average Georgia because it's heterogeneous in terms of some states and places we can get into that. The socioeconomic impacts are quite different. But I would simply say that the risk is higher when we're aware. So if you're going to go to that restaurant, sit outside. If you're going to be with other people, wear a mask. There are things we know now that are different. But the risk is gone up, not gone down. Professor White, um, my wife, our 23-year-old daughter, has come home to be with us to wait out the virus. Um, We're pretty much continuing to shelter in place. We go out very rarely. We wear masks. We dash into a store and dash back out. Yet around us, we see people socializing, getting close to each other, and it drives me nuts not wearing masks. Um, Do they know something I don't? Are we near the end of the pandemic or are we still in the early stages? And what should we be doing right now? So we're nearer to the beginning than we are to the end. And that's just clear. And how close we are 
to the end. And I think it's, it's, it has to be careful about the end, meaning until we actually get a vaccine or therapeutics that we sort of reduce the, the severity. Those sorts of things may be exogenous to what we do in the meantime. But when I talk about sort of the end in terms of a disease that it's a sporadic outbreak, there's that one location that's a hot spot and that's being dealt with as opposed to having, you know, let's say brush fires every which way, and we're not even sure where they're going to pop up. We are still in that phase. And we have many indicators that we're still in that phase. So when you go out, and, and I'll give just one or two examples, but when you go out and see different responses, I think you're seeing a natural human response to, in some sense, differential experiences with the risk themselves. So, and Kevin, you mentioned the, sort of the average origin. I actually think it's, it's important to unpack that and say that this disease has impacted Georgians quite differently, depending on county, depending on age, depending on socioeconomic factors. So I think it's natural to think that people may have personally experienced it quite differently. And they also may have different tolerance of risk, perceptions of risk. And in some cases, whether it's someone going to work, they may not have the option, right? They literally may not have the economic option to work from home. So there's all those factors in place. I would like to see more to the extent to which people do go out, whether because they have to or because they want to, and there is a health benefit to being outdoors, that they continue to try and socially distance to wear masks whenever possible and make smaller choices that can lead to bigger differences. First of all, with respect to beginning and end, in terms of the vulnerability of the state, we remain almost entirely immunologically naive. There are 60,000 confirmed cases. If we believe that was true, then you can already see there are more than nine and a half million Georgians, 10 million plus that still haven't been infected, all of which could be infected. But if we think that's tenfold undercount, which I think is true, then we're probably about five or 6% of the state, meaning 95% of the state remains susceptible. That's closer to the beginning than the end. With respect to what we can do to make a difference, there's this notion of this effective reproduction number or basic reproduction number, which I think we talked about a while back. If one person gets sick, how many people on average do they infect? And when that number is bigger than one, the disease spreads. And it probably intrinsically is about three. And there can be super spreading events that lead to far more. But we don't have to get it to zero to drive down cases. We need to drive that number to less than replacement. So that again means that when people wear masks, reducing it by 75%, let's say, of the risk of passing on disease, it doesn't have to be 100%. So I'd also say for people who are wearing masks and are trying to do 100% reduction of the risk, if someone else is doing 80% reduction, that's actually good. That's helping us. So I think we need to be aware that steps we take can contribute, even if they're not perfect, at the same time being aware that the risk has not passed. And if that helps give some... Kevin, jump in. Well, you, you talk about a lot of uh, small things. I mean, we've, we've talked about masks and socially distancing. I mean, are there other other things that, you know, just, you know, habits we can change or things uh, people ought to do? There's all sorts of ways that with respect to picking up food as a contact list. If you're working, have you thought about shift work? I mean, we're at Georgia Tech thinking about getting back into the research laboratories. Our group is a theory computation group. So we have the benefit of working from home. 
as folks know, working from home, also psychically, that's not so great too after a while. You want to see other people. So we do have meetings. We go outside and we stand far enough apart that we can have a conversation if that's necessary. For those who are going to work, if you think about, as I said, shift work when possible, spacing when possible, making choices to sit outside rather than inside, also thinking empathetically about others. So when I see folks at a restaurant, I too often see the staff member, the server wearing the mask, and every patron not wearing a mask. That's, I think, a habit that we should be changing, right? that must change. Otherwise, that individual you know, is not being empathetically about the others. And that also is going to make a bigger difference when we get into the fall with schools, whether universities or elementary schools high schools and middle schools, when we're going to start to think about congregating people, we have to think very carefully, empathetically, because many, if not, you know, half of the transmission is often from people who don't have symptoms, don't have a temperature, who may be pre-symptomatic or mild or asymptomatic. So thinking empathetically has got to be part of it. You know, we have talked a lot about, Dr. Weiss, a lot about statistics and uh, all these things and, and Department of Health statistics. What's the t- statistic that, for you, as an obvious expert in, in what's going on, which one do you watch closest or do you find most meaningful that that, that maybe a, a layman can also understand? Yep. The one that when we built our models, great question, in late April, I ignored the numbers of cases because I thought that was so biased. I didn't know what to do with it. Instead, I looked far more at hospitalizations and fatalities. Because those two numbers, irrespective of testing, if someone's sick and they need to go to the hospital, that in the end is what we're most concerned about. There are other viruses like the common cold and seasonal beta coronaviruses that make a lot, affect a lot of people, but we don't stop what we're doing because they don't make people severely sick or cause fatalities at the rate that we're seeing. And that is also less susceptible to the kind of biases and ascertainment. Right? When you have a severe enough symptom, you have to go to the hospital. It doesn't matter if you hadn't been tested yet. So I tend to look at those. They're a bit lagged, but they tend to be more reliable than cases. Uh, I've got to take another break uh, to uh, give you an opportunity out there in the listening audience to uh, make your donation to GPB Radio if you haven't done it so far. We'll come back with one more segment after this. AJC editor Kevin Riley with me. It's Thursday. He always is. And uh, Dr. Joshua Weitz of Georgia Tech. Um, so here's a question for you, uh, Professor Weitz. Uh, when all of this started, people like me, journalists, Kevin Riley, and political folks, uh, we started watching modeling, especially the University of Washington's IHME models of projections of how the virus was going to spread. It's interesting that we talked about it on this show all the time. A lot of people did. It in the long run, these these models have proven to be relatively worth not only worthless but perhaps a little dangerous. Have I got that right? Ah, uh, that was me screaming. Um, so I don't know if that's <laughs> the right reaction as a modeler, but let me try to unpack that because I think part of the issue has been that there is different kinds of models out there. And I have from the very outset 
been concerned, as have others, that certain models seem to be designed to spread quickly, almost, you know, not to make the comparison to a virus, rather than to be rigorous or mechanistic. The model you refer to as one example makes an assumption that what goes up must come down. It assumes, by definition, that cases go up and symmetrically go back down. There's no epidemiological law that says that. For example, way back I believe it was in April, the IHME model made a projection that the disease was basically going to be gone by early June, where we are now, with no uncertainty. There's no way that was right then, and we recognize that. So I think the concern, first of all, is that the IHME model and other projections that are sort of too rosy by half have confused people because people say, well, the models are wrong, so we can ignore them. So my other point I just want to make briefly, so no we're running out of time, is that the point of models have been to try to present scenarios that could happen if we don't take action. And in that sense, they have been effective at communicating the benefits of whether it's lockdowns or uh, contact tracing, whether or not politicians and the public adopt more strategic uses of interventions is a different matter. But the fact that the models have diverged and things are not as bad as they could be, doesn't mean that they're not right. It means that we're trying to use them to avoid bad outcomes. It's not like weather prediction. We don't have to, well, we want a certain prediction to be right. We want to have scenarios that change things. But the IHME model has been wrong. It's been wrong for a while. I think we need to stop using it. Well, that, that's and I want to real quickly do that and get Kevin in. I was talking specifically about the IHME model, not work that you've been doing, because, as you point out, they've been modeling toward a place where we're not going to see the virus anymore, which is what I meant by that's some, somewhat dangerous. Your modeling doesn't show that at all. We've been showing a plateau and predicting a plateau since late April. And so I think we need to mentally get out. And we've been saying, let's move beyond a peak mentality, the idea that there's a peak and it's going to go away. That peak mentality sets people up dangerously for an expectation. Well, you know, it's, it's like clockwork. It should be now gone so I can behave differently. It depends on what the state of play is. And if we're in a plateau or a mesa, as it were, then it's still at risk, even if people said there was going to be a peak. So just to be clear, Kevin, the, the, the model you're referring to is the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. Correct. And, of course, um, they do things one way. Uh, Dr. Weiss is doing things another way. And there are tons of tons of models out there. But, again, for an average person sitting out there, I think your message is clear, right, Dr. Weiss? Is, hey, the models are not intended to tell you exactly what's going to happen. They're more intended to share with you the assumptions they make to see where those assumptions may lead us. Is that a better way for average people to understand it? Or I would say they're guides to scenario building. What would happen if we take this kind of scale of intervention? I think that is the key part of the use of these models, that can we think more strategically? We've been emphasizing the use of serology. How do we take antibody tests as an intervention? Other people have made arguments why we need to accelerate contact tracing. So to me, that these sorts of issues of how do we take models as a means, as a tool to guide interventions, is I think their key utility. There's going to be uncertainty. I think we can project in the near term about a month fairly well, but beyond that, what happens is up to us. So I think we need to parse models more generally in that time frame. Near-term scenarios, okay, they're giving us predictions. Long-term, they're helping us guide action. Do you think, Dr. Weitz, that it is unrealistic to suggest that some of us, I'm 73 years old, 
I'm in that more fragile uh, group, uh, should actually consider uh, sheltering in place or some version of modified sheltering in place as long as, say, the rest of 2020? Is it, is, are we projecting out that far at this point? I don't think there's any indication that we're going to have, at least right now, and again, if, if, if I'm wrong, I'll be delighted. I'll be delighted to be wrong if there is some vaccine or therapeutic that reduces severity, you know, either prevents or, or, or treats severe illness effectively in the next six months. But for people who are at high risk, I think you should continue to consider the fact that the infection fatality rate goes up markedly with age, and particularly 70-plus. Just as even one example, that's different because there are other comorbidities. Of the 2,000-plus fatalities in Georgia, about half have been in nursing homes. And irrespective even of nursing homes, if we look, cases tend to be more on the, let's say, less than 65, but the fatalities tend to be 65-plus. So, yes, I think we need to be thinking carefully, if you're at risk, about ways to sustain a different mode for a while, unfortunately. Kevin, take a last very quick question. Well, let me just say, Bill, I mean, uh, you're a good friend, and I hope you follow Dr. Weiss's advice uh, on this. Um, (laughs) Really quick, Dr. Weiss, uh, as of yesterday, I think we had about 850 or 860 hospitalizations in Georgia. In a nutshell, what does that tell you? Active hospitalizations are precursors to fatalities. So they give you some sense of deaths to come, just like cases are a bit early indicators. So all I would say is that we remain at elevated levels, and I guess that's all I can say for now. I've got to get out of this uh, conversation, I, and I wish we could keep talking, but Dr. Joshua Weitz, you are so helpful. I, I, I've learned a lot today about where we stand with the virus, and I'm incredibly grateful to you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. And Kevin Riley, as usual, I'm delighted that you're my partner on the Thursday show. Uh, to both of you, my thanks. And to you out there, please take care, stay healthy, 